Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Professor George Ola, 1994 Nobel Prize winner in chemistry, and Mr. Donald Allstott, Chairman Emeritus of the Lord Corporation, discuss the contributions of chemistry. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and don't forget to subscribe to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. You're one of the members of that celebrated culture, which has been called the Hungarian Martians by a variety of people in a variety of conditions. Uh, And I'm speaking of those celebrated Hungarian people who have come to this country, uh, made such an impact on science, engineering, technology, culture, and often of whom are subject to the question, how did this happen in such a small area in such a relatively short period of time. Uh, The first of these people that I ever knew was uh, Theodore von Karman, and he was, I understand, the product of this incredible gymnasium high school culture. Would you like to say something about the Hungarian uh, Martians, as we often call them in society? Well, maybe I could briefly reflect on where this comes from. Also, I haven't looked it up recently, but I guess Fermi was quoted by by this, who made some remarks about uh, some Hungarians, and he raised some questions, maybe somewhat related to yours. And uh, in the discussion, I guess somebody reflected on this, and it was probably Leo Szilard, that all this came about that it may be really true that some Martian reached our planet Earth, and they (coughs) even had high intelligence. Uh, I'm not so sure that uh, (laughs) this is characteristic of Hungarian. But anyhow, he said, so here were these Martians with all their super intelligence and so on, but they had one major problem. They had a terrible accent. So they desperately looked around and tried to find people who have even a worse accent than they have. And they found them in the Hungarian. <laughs> so if you met some, some Hungarians, realize they have a common asset. They had a fairly thick accent, which they carry for a lifetime. <laughs> but coming back to your, to your question, now I read and heard about some of this. Now, I, I really, personally, I am not convinced that the reality of all this. I really don't believe that any particular group, nationality or, or religious or, or other group, has, has higher born in intelligence or talent than others. I don't think we are genetically predisposed for this. We, we acquire bioenvironment, certain things. And I think the common factor in a number of scientists who came out of Hungary, I must say Budapest, because uh, it's a small country with a relatively large capital city, like Austria. It used to be a much bigger country, but after World War II, a good part of the country was cut away, but the capital stayed there. So it's like a big head with a relatively small body. And Budapest had a number of of fairly good uh, middle and high schools called, after the German system, gymnasium. I had great fun for this because when I came to this country as a a young man, I, I wrote, of course, a curriculum vitae when I started to look for a job. And I put down that I attended for eight years a gymnasium. This had a wonderful effect because I don't know whether I was considered for job as a chemist, but certainly with this background, they may have considered me as a as a coach. <laughs> but I really think it it was schooling, and in one city, a limited number, but but fairly good schools. And now I haven't gone to to the schools. Most of the physicists have gone. I have gone to a to a school run by a Roman Catholic order called the Piarist, which was a very tough school, but it served me well. Now, I was the second 
student of the school who got the Chemistry Nobel Prize. The first was George Hevesy. I confess you, nobody ever mentioned him in the eight years. Probably they even haven't heard about him at this time. Well, his name is not really Hungarian in the sense that most people would expect, right? No, but I mean in your school. Oh, yeah. In your school, if a former student got a Nobel Prize, you would have expected that at least there should be some, some remembrance of this. <laughs> but maybe science wasn't, wasn't of, of such high importance. But I really think it, it, was, it was the schools who created an atmosphere which allowed some student to, to develop some interest and teach us. You know, a good teacher can be an inspiration. Well, there are a limited number of these high schools or gymnasium to which apparently a lot of these Nobel Prize winners went. I mean, they're fairly limited in number and in proximity to each other. You know, the statistical sample is relatively small. It's even not clear to me how many, quote unquote, Hungarian Nobel Prize winners are there. I think Hungary claims now 12, but the connection to some of them is rather weak. So I guess a more realistic number, maybe six or seven. And uh, so I, what I say is a statistical sample isn't, isn't overwhelming. But it's not only limited to Nobel Prize winners, there were people like von Neumann and von Karman who had incredible impacts on the engineering and other cultural. Oh, uh, I, I, I'm very conservative. I don't like to use big words either, but what I, I never met him, of course, he died, unfortunately, early, but uh, Neumann was, uh, by people, quite knowledgeable, one of the real geniuses of, of the, the 20th mm -hmm. century. And his impact was, was very significant. As you know, he was really a mathematician. Oh, yes. However, who had a real feeling to also apply his mathematics to problems which, which had a real yeah. practical, practical interest. One story about him that I'll just quickly tell was that even when he was on his deathbed, they made sure that people were standing around him with papers and pencils. He may actually come out with a solution to something right now as he was passing on that we certainly don't want to miss. And that was a myth, maybe myth, well, maybe story anyway. It's a tough way to, to pass <laughs> on science, I must <laughs> tell you. Well, Dr. Ola, let's get, uh, really spend more time here talking about yourself and your work. Uh, you have, of course, as I understand it, <clears throat> let's say, built on some of the, what might have been considered facts, but now we look at them as well, maybe useful myths that existed for a long period of time, like the, you know, like the basic structure and calculus model of the benzene ring and so forth and so on. Would you like just to uh, explain to me and to our audience this unique relationship between the super acid world that you have utilized so well and the, <clears throat> let's say, the proof that certain of these long-term carbonium ions actually exist and are uniquely manipulatable for other purposes than we ever thought might be? Oh, I, I try to tackle this in a, in a understandable way. I okay. hope I right. will succeed okay. To, okay. to some degree. I am a chemist and chemists are supposed to be able to make compounds and look at compounds and understand the structure and also if they acquire some knowledge hopefully put it to some practical use. So chemistry is not an abstract science. It's, it's a very practical science. Also, the understanding sometimes can be very theoretical. Uh, we talked before we started about Paul Dirac. Uh, Paul Dirac had not a very high opinion about chemistry. <laughs> it's well quoted that when Schrödinger solved his, his famous equation for the H2 molecule, two hydrogen atoms bound together, Dirac reflected that 
it's quite obvious now that uh, chemistry is only a small derivative of physics. <laughs> and all of chemistry can be derived by first principle from physics. Now, he may be right in a perspective, which is difficult for me to guess, because it's a fact that we can't solve by first principle Schrodinger's equation for anything which has more than two atoms. And the last time I checked, there is a, a great shortage of interesting chemical entities which have only two atoms. And it may take uh, eons, even with computers we can't dream about today, mm. that uh, science should be able to do this. On the other hand, I must confess that I couldn't solve the Schrodinger equation for hydrogen, but I had a, a reasonable, productive, and certainly for myself, very satisfying career in chemistry. So you don't need in chemistry to believe that you can have all the theoretical underpinning before you can do something. Now, uh, I never was really interested in, in science or chemistry when I was growing up. In my school years, I can't remember really any, any real interest. I admire people who are telling about their, their life and they tell you that when they were seven year old, they know exactly what they want to do in biochemistry or, or planetary physics. By the time they were 14, they had these wonderful ideas and achievements. Now, maybe I was just a slow starter or a very dumb individual. Uh, I'm glad I got a broad general education in school. And it served me quite, quite well. And uh, I quote uh, Jean Wigner on this, who was a Hungarian-born physicist. I know, some, he taught me. <laughs> uh, I, I read about him that he described his father was a businessman. And when he was 17, close to finish high school, one day his father sat down with him and asked him what you want to do. And his son told him that he would like to become a theoretical physicist. So his father asked him in, in Hungary, how many jobs are for this kind of people? And his son, who was a very honest guy, thought and he said, three, but maybe only two. <laughs> At this point, his father suggested that his son should study something which is more realistic to also able to make a living. And I understand Wigner studied a little chemistry. Chemical then, engineering. Yeah, but you know, this, this chemical engineering in Europe. Was not like it is here. It's, it's not like American chemical engineering. The German technical universities who were teaching uh, chemical engineering, really were teaching chemistry. Mm -hmm. I also started in, in a technical university. As a matter of fact, I think that as late as 1960, there was no chemical engineering curricula as we know it in this country, in most German universities. That's right. On the other hand, all chemical engineers are not taught excessive <laughs> chemistry. So anyhow, when I started the university, I took some chemistry courses and I fell in love with chemistry. Don't ask me why, I don't think you can explain why you fall in love. I'm still and I'm doing this. <laughs> now, uh, chemistry fascinated me for a number of reasons. One is that it has a tremendous scope. I mean, on one hand, uh, chemistry plays the crucial role in the biological or life sciences. It's basically chemistry which tells you on the molecular level of what's going on in, in biological system. On the other hand, on the other end of the the scale chemists are the people who can make practical material, fuels, all kinds of wonderful high technology materials and, and everything else. When you look around, practically around here, what is man-made is due to chemistry. So it was a very fascinating thing and I still, still enjoy it. Now, what you do, of course, in, in chemistry or in any other science, uh, you try to find out, you have curiosity. I really think that science is basically curiosity driven. There is something in, in man, uh, 
uh, which induce him, he tries to find out about his surroundings, the physical world and how it works, the rules and so on. So when you do this, you can do a lot of, of practical science too. Now, Dr. <coughs> Cyril Smith, I heard one state, uh, necessity is the mother of improvement. Curiosity is the mother of real discovery and invention. And I think that's... It's true, but you see, from a realistic point of view, uh, whether you are employed by a university or a government laboratory or in industry, and I have been in industry too, I worked for eight years for the Dow Chemical Company and I had a pretty good time with them. But you see, most, most of these approaches expect you that you do something uh, which is predictable, which is solid, which uh, can be outlined and so on, and have also results. Look, in academic life, we write proposals for support. Mm -hmm. And a proposal can't be really very innovative because if you really are thinking about something which is entirely new, it's very difficult to, to put it down. Creative uh, science, like creative art, uh, cannot be easily defined in advance. Look, an artist, uh, really a pioneering artist, obviously puts his, his own taste, his own expression on the canvas. Mm. Now, I don't know whether Picasso, when he was a young man, could have written proposals to potential uh, sponsors what kind of paintings he will <laughs> paint in whatever period of his life. Now, to, to a degree, you know, that's what, what happens in science too. There was a science uh, philosopher, uh, Thomas Kuhn, who taught for a long while at, at MIT. And he had this, this uh, well-known concept, he called most science as normal science normal, predictable, solid. And I say this following his view with great affection. Uh, most of science is, is normal science, which can be very solid, very useful. It, it gets you a lot of facts which fits the existing principles and so on. But it's not very exciting. And then what he said, there's a very small amount of this he called this revolutionary science. Now you could call it crazy science or innovative or whatever, where some people have way out ideas maybe. And most of it never comes to anything. And it's, if, if you try to pursue this, of course, it's much tougher. The safe way is to go where everybody else is going. Doctor, as far as I can see, you have pursued and clarified some things that are not particularly expected or standard. I am coming to this. I tried to... And they're useful. Yeah, I, I tried to, to introduce this uh, <laughs> curiosity. The driving force really is curiosity. Now, then you also, I think, uh, must have luck, or I wouldn't really say luck, you should keep your eyes open. Uh, discoveries, really, and this is not original, this was said before, discoveries probably are made by a number of people, but many of them never realize that they discovered something. Let's say you go on a walk and you walk on this path, and there is this dirty-looking uh, rock laying there, and you are not a geologist, and you just walk past, <laughs> and you have no idea what this is. Yeah. But one day on the same path comes a trained geologist who sees, sees the same dirty rock, but he realizes that underneath this dirt there may be a nice diamond there. So in a way, you know, uh, we, do, we do science. We sometimes observe unexpected things. Many of the best trained scientists neglect it because they have set ideas. They know a lot and they want to pursue knowledge in a, in a predictable, organized way. But I always felt the fun start when you start to observe things which you can't understand, 
And now, first of all, you should be sure that your work is correct, that your experiments are correct, that you are not making bad mistakes. But if you convince yourself that what you have done is a real observation, then I think you have a right to think you know, about in it. A, in another field of uh, activity, uh, a gentleman who doesn't live too far from here, Peter Drecker, made a comment to my wife, Judy, she says, how do you see these future things? He said, I don't look in the corner. I just look out the window and I observe and I hope to be impacted on things that I wouldn't expect to have seen. Huh? And this no, is an no, entirely different wor world. I mean, but to come back, you know, uh, as I said, I, I started my life in Hungary, my scientific life too, but then in 1956 I was thrown out after a revolution into the great world and I had a wife and a young son, so I needed to, to get a job to survive. And uh, I got a job with the Dow Chemical Company and as I said, I had a very good time with them. Why I had such a good time was that uh, my employer expected people just to work 40 hours a week. And uh, after the workday was over, they have gone home. Now, <coughs> this crazy young Hungarian-born guy had this, this passion to stay long hours. And I think as a little expression of goodwill, my research director, eventually agreed that I can do this crazy thing. So if you work 80 or 90 or 100 hours, and only, uh, it's not so much. Uh, and only 40 is for your employer's project. You have a lot of time on your own to do things which, which you are interested. Now, as you said, eventually things, uh, things come to a point where they may be used. Now, I tell you this, this very briefly. I came along systems, acid systems, acids are, are substances. The name acidus from the Latin means, means a sour taste. And it goes back a long while. Vinegar was realized as an acidic substance. But then in the Middle Ages, people started to, to produce uh, acids like sulfuric acid, which for a long while was considered a strong acid. When I grew up, sulfuric acid was a strong acid. So anyhow, in, in my, my work, I came across and developed further some, some there's always a beginning. Ooh. We are always stepping on, on the shoulders of, of, of others. There was a very well-known American chemist, J.B. Conant. Oh, yes. yes, I know him uh, now, briefly. Now, you know, Dr. <laughs> Conant started as an organic chemist at Harvard, then became president of Harvard University. He was involved in the Manhattan Project. After the war, he was the first Allied Health Commissioner for Occupied Germany and a very noted scholar and, and educator. Now, Conant, in 1927, it's a very good year. I was born in this year. <laughs> but he published scientific papers, published two papers in which he described some chemistry where by using perchloric acid, he was able to do some things which regular acid can't do. And he called this superacid. A few people know this. The name wasn't coming from me or my contemporaries. It came from Conant's. Fortunately for me, he got carried away in many other more important areas than this. So when in the late 50s and early 60s I, I worked, I found acids which were even a hell of a lot more stronger than what Dr. Conant was involved. And some of these acids we know now are, say, a trillion times more acidic than sulfuric acid. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you these big numbers and it means obviously you know, it, absolutely nothing. It's rather paradoxical, but I picked up a biography of Conant last Monday and spent two evenings reading it. And your comment 
that you've just given me. I had not heard for a long time until I saw the book the other night. So I'm glad I bought the book and I'm at least somewhat more prepared than if I hadn't bought it. So You know, I published uh, maybe 10 years ago a book entitled Super Assets. And the book is dedicated to, to the late Professor Conan. Now, in all sincerity, I don't think the distinguished scholars at Harvard and so on uh, ever remembered or even realized that Conan was starting a field like this. After all, this field has also practical implication and uh, really some <coughs> very leading institution couldn't dirty the hand with, with science, which has also practical implication. But anyhow, you have this acid, this enormously uh, acidic system. And I said a trillion, you see, this means nothing, except I guess that our national debt is now maybe $5 trillion. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that members of Congress really have much feeling what this big number is. Mm -hmm. They vote on a trillion seven budget. Mm -hmm. It's entirely hypothetical. But if they go out with their wife to a restaurant and have a good dinner with a bottle of wine and pay a hundred bucks, this is real. <laughs> I mean, then you relate it. So this very high acidity opened up vistas. And the vistas was that at very high acidities, many substances which against normal acids have no reactivity or behavior, became quite basic and react. Now, one is methane, and I won't bother uh, with details. Methane is the simplest compound of carbon. Carbon is a very central element on our Earth. Mm. And uh, carbon can bind with four neighbors or atoms. This was the German chemist Kekulé's realization in the mm. middle of the 19th century. This magic number of four is still dominating. Oh, yeah the chemistry of carbon, and methane is the simplest compound of carbon with four hydrogen. CH4, a central carbon atom bound with four hydrogen atoms. Mm -hmm. Now, in this long saga of studying these new possibilities of what chemistry do at very high acidities, I realized that even methane becomes a base and with the superacid, it forms an ionic compound, CH5+. Now, ions are compounds where atoms are bound together by electric attraction forces. Mm -hmm. Table salt, sodium chloride, is a sodium ion, sodium plus, which binds Cl-. So this is an ionic type of, of bonding. Now, carbon compounds, we're not supposed to form ions. And in the enormous wide chemistry of, of carbon, called organic chemistry frequently, ionic carbon compounds were, were not considered uh, even to exist for a very long while. Only we, we thought about free radicals. That was revolutionary to us, you know. Yeah, and you see there's a relationship. <laughs> free radicals. Uh, with uh, non-paired electrons were first suggested by Moses Gomberg. At Michigan. At Michigan in 1901. Mm -hmm. Now, coincidentally, in the same year, a uh, chemist in Germany suggested that in some dyes, there was a great interest at the <coughs> time in, in dyes, which chemists could make. And one particular type of dyes which had three benzene ring attached to a carbon atom, it was suggested that this may be ionic compounds. But as Gomberg's uh, radical, which is also a triphenyl uh, metal radical, these uh, organic cations were considered a curiosity and nothing happens for them for decades. So with the advent of- Did they actually believe they exist or, or did they think maybe they existed? Now, except they, they agreed that they exist, but only when you have three benzene ring okay. attached to it to stabilize it. Otherwise, they were considered... Not, uh, not out in little space here by themselves somewhere. Yeah. No? 
So with this very high acidity system, it was possible to show that these ions of carbon not only do exist, but you can easily generate them, in some cases isolate them, and start to do chemistry with them. Now, from a scientific point of view, it was, and it's still quite exciting, that carbon, under some situation, can have not only five neighbors bond to it, not only four, as Kekulé is limited, Ooh. but five. Later, we found even six, and very recently, we found even seven. So, <coughs> here is something which is scientifically exciting. Uh, eventually, it got some recognition for me, but it's not really the, the crucial thing. For a chemist, it's a wonderful thing that if you discover an entirely new uh, experimental set, it's like a toy. And for a while, at least, you have it. Also, I think in science, we try to communicate. So you describe it so others can also have and enjoy your talk. Mm -hmm. But it started a, a substantial chapter of chemistry where many, many applications can come about. And it has also many practical applications. Well, did, did this work not really, to a large degree, result in new horizons of hydrocarbon technology, hydrocarbon possibilities. And you actually have an institute here that may or may not have ever been started had this kind of new possibility not suggested itself. Now, it's all true, and I will answer both parts. Uh, one of the, the best application presently is, is in, in hydrocarbons and transforming hydrocarbons. You know, hydrocarbons, as the name says, are compounds of two elements, carbon and hydrogen. Now, nature gave mankind the tremendous gift of hydrocarbons in the form of oil and gas. Even coal is, is a carbon compound with a relatively limited amount of, of hydrogen in them. But oil, petroleum, is nothing else than a mixture of hydrocarbons, a natural gas is again light hydrocarbon, mostly methane, with a little ethane and so on. Uh, but man is not using this as they come out of, of the earth. So man is doing all kinds of transformation. The oil refineries take the crude oil and refine it in the way that they not only purify it, but they cut it into different parts which can be of, of real use. Mm -hmm. And in part of these processes, acids as catalyst. The catalyst is, is an agent which promotes a reaction but itself does not take part of it. Mm. Acid catalysts were known for a long while to be exceedingly useful in doing some of this transformation. Now, can I tell you, for example, one very practical example of hydrocarbon chemistry and chemistry's contribution of transformations to practical purposes. And I take you back a little, but our generation remembers this from experience. The young generation must have learned about it. The time is the fall of 1940, and the place is southern England and the Channel, and the event is the Battle of Britain, as Winston Churchill named it. Uh, Hitler's army overran Europe, and it was poised on the British Channel, ready to invade Great Britain, and all what separated it was uh, the British Channel. Well, the Germans, because of their past success in Poland and Europe, wanted first to acquire air superiority. And uh, there was this, this great battle fought over, over southern England and the Channel, and uh, Churchill gave credit much better than I could to the heroic young pilots to the Royal Air Force who fought, many died, but eventually won the Battle of Britain. <coughs> now, there is a technical aspect to this, which is uh, considerably less known, and I put it in some perspectives. Now, just uh, four months earlier, over the lowlands and France and so on, 
the German Luftwaffe <coughs> dominated the skies. And there wasn't really any time frame in between that uh, new technology would be introduced. In any, it was the same planes, the same Spitfire and Hurricane uh, planes of, of the Allies on one side and the same Messerschmitts on the German side. And nobody wants to diminish the bravery of the, the pilots of the Royal Air Force. On the other hand, I suspect that the German counterpart also fought well. If for no other reason, nobody wants to be killed in battle. So what happened? Now, what happened was that in the intervening few months, Uncle Sam started to deliver to Belgrade, England, for the first time, a new aviation fuel. This new aviation fuel, which had a high octane number, this octane number is just a number which expresses the burning <coughs> ability of your fuel, was much higher than the previously used fuels. In numbers, what was used just a few months before had an octane number of maybe 85. This new American fuel had an octane number of 100 or higher. And people who are knowledgeable, I am not, in aviation technology are telling me that this means that with this new fuel, the same planes were able to outspeed and outclimb their opponent by as much as 40 or 45 percent efficiency. So I am not saying that this was the only reason, but in the field of, of uh, petroleum products and so on, it's now reasonably well recognized that's the advent of high-octane aviation gasoline at this crucial time had a major impact on the outcome of World War II. Some claims that this was a bigger achievement than the atom bomb, because in 1945, when we dropped the atom bomb, the, the war for all practical purposes was, was finished. Now, it may have saved a million lives, not only American, but Japanese and so on and it heralded a new age. But high-octane gasoline was a major factor. And this was developed by American company. And the gentleman whose name was Ipachev, who was a Russian who came he to this- Chicago, wasn't he? In, yeah. Uh, yeah, one of the Chicago- uh, Yeah, UOP, yes. Ipachev was a, a Russian professor coming from a noble family. Mm -hmm which wasn't very good for him when the Bolsheviks took over. And even worse so, during World War II, he was in charge of the Tsar's army's uh, technical efforts. He was a general during World War I in the Tsar's army. Now, what I read about it, supposedly Lenin rescued his life personally because he felt that he can be of substantial use to the to the industry they wanted to develop in the Soviet Union. But he managed to escape, and around 1930, he came to America. And an industrial company employed him. And he was 61 years old, and he couldn't speak a word of English. <laughs> and uh, in less than a decade, he created what many believe the foundation of the American petrochemical industry. And his invention was that with acidic catalyst, you can branch hydrocarbon molecules, which burns them better, give a high octane, or you can put together fragments in a process called alkylation. So you, here you is you a- perceive, I hate to use the word quantum because it can either be small or large. Yeah. You perceive step uh, improvements and results as a result of these new work on superacids and, well, and carbocations you know, in this field? I don't want to sound very conceited, and I use this tongue-in-cheek <laughs> again, Thomas Kuhn's definition. Kuhn said that when you go from normal or regular science by some revolutionary jump, you, you make what he called a paradigm change. And in my field of, of chemistry, 
I really think we made a paradigm change because, you know, at these very high acidities, uh, you can do really uh, quite magic chemistry. You know, I named one of my super acid, or a student of mine once named it magic acid. It's still sold now under this name. <laughs> the story was that uh, we had a Christmas party. This was a, a case in Cleveland. <coughs> in in the early 70s. And there was some Christmas candles lying around in the lab after the party. And he took one of these little ornamental Christmas candles and stuck it into this acid, and it dissolved in the acid. Of course, these candles are paraffins. Ooh. And it's dissolved in this acid and formed a wonderful stable solution of this positive ions of the inborn carbon compound. So my former student named this, that uh, this acid is magic. <laughs> and the name stuck, it's a trade name. Ooh. But uh, this is very high acid. And there are now many systems. Uh, some of them already in large industrial scale. They are solid uh, catalyst systems called zeolites. Mm -hmm. And some of these zeolites <coughs> have acidic, as a matter of fact, superacidic sites. Mm -hmm. And uh, the industry is using some of these on a very large scale. Doctor, I have a, a question which fascinates me personally, scientifically. In reading some of your work, I thought to myself, my God, could this allow me to do this. I am primarily interested in surfaces. I am not particularly concerned primarily with catalysis, but I'm interested in really fast reaction phenomena at the surfaces of metals. And I have more knowledge really of the band theory of solids and the surface of metals and solids than I do any longer of organic chemistry. But one of the things that I'm dedicated in doing in the next two and a half months is to review some of the work more assiduously that I've been able to do on what you've done in some of these and contemplate, my God, maybe it is possible. Then I'm going to call you and say, if this is possible, uh, let's talk again. You know, I moved out here in 1977 to USC, and this was after this oil crisis situation. USC trustees at the time felt of some interest that maybe some research and teaching could be done. Mm -hmm. And that's when our little institute got, got started. Mm -hmm. uh, I got my Nobel Prize in 1994. Our institute was by this time well established. We, we raised the fund for a wonderful building and all this was done before. Mm -hmm. So it's not whatever recognition comes from whatever price. Mm -hmm. But our little institute, little, we have about 60 people in this institute. And I tell you, doing fundamental research, we have the, the advantage that at least to a great degree we can pursue our interest. I find it really very sad that probably in this little institute, we have more capacity for doing basic research in this hydrocarbon and related field than the three largest oil companies in the world combined. And this makes very little sense, but it's a fact. The reality of, of life is that even the largest oil companies spend very little on this long range or ill-defined uh, research. But yep. one activity we have besides this area of, of fuels and product and so on, we have a significant effort in materials, particularly in, in new high technology materials, solids and modified solids mm -hmm. and so on. And we know how to put on wonderful solid and oriented solids and so on and solid surfaces. Uh, intriguing functionalities, which makes them, fascinates me, which see. makes them very useful in conductive materials in all kinds yeah. of application. But also, you see, 
our, our acid catalysts are not now just bulk material. They are very high technology things where you have very high surface materials on which we can, we can create high acidity sites. You're, this can know, do all kinds of wonderful things. You know, you're dealing with a world now. Uh, Wolfgang Pauli said, God created the universe, but the devil created surfaces. <laughs> so yeah, you're, you're, but, de you're dealing with a you're dealing with a wonderful new world of. But you can you can understand surfaces <laughs> and you can modify surfaces. Oh, yeah. And now uh, through the miracles of chemistry, we can even create some very intriguing new man-made materials with with high surface areas and, and behavior. So it's, it's great fun. You know, you made a comment a minute ago about the incredible amount of research capacity, ability you have, and this exists in an amazingly high ratio of ability to most industrial laboratories. <clears throat> I think I'm going to drop my own little philosophy in here, which has been a guiding light and the way I've tried to run the corporation, our own. The future of this world and country depends to a large degree on how the academic world and the corporate world can create new knowledge and then utilize it to create new things for a wide range of stakeholders in our organizations. All <clears throat> and upgrade the total amount of, let's say, social equity for the benefit of lots of people. And the corporate world that doesn't understand the incredible opportunities in dealing with what goes on in academia, I think is a very, very unfortunate, uh, uh, let's say, short-sighted view. It's, it's true, but of course, you know, it also depends oh. on fields. Oh, if yeah. somebody is in software, oh, yeah. Or even in computer technology. Look yeah. at biotechnology. You can yeah. start small biotechnology companies or small yeah. computer companies. And if you have really a, a good idea which you can develop into a product, they grow yeah. fast. I mean, the whole world is excellent. I'll tell you an example of, of our efforts in the last decade and uh, some of the frustration and so on. We got involved about 10 years ago through friends at Caltech and the Jet Proportion Lab mm -hmm. from Carman's mm -hmm. child mm -hmm. in developing a, an entirely new generation of a fuel cell. A fuel cell is a device which can convert a chemical reaction into electricity. Now, fuel cells are not new. They were discovered 150 years ago by a Scotsman. When you put electric current through water with two electrodes and separate it, you can split water into hydrogen and oxygen. Now this gentleman mixed up things a little and he combined hydrogen and oxygen in this device and observes that when you burn hydrogen and oxygen over two electrodes with a catalyst, you can create electricity. But nothing practical happened up till the space age. When we started to put up our space probes and vehicles, we needed electricity and the fuel cell provides it. JPL builds the fuel cells for all the US space vehicles, including the shuttle. But these shuttle astronauts, of course, are very brave people. They take off on a rocket which carries in pressurized tanks <coughs> many metric tons of liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. And this works most of the time. Once in a while you have an accident and then you have a major disaster. So we set out to try to develop a fuel cell device which could be used practically for small applications. And fuel cells now became very popular. Everybody talks about it. Uh, all the big car makers make big investment and so on. But whatever you hear is still the same type of fuel cell. It burns hydrogen, except that now they also can put a little device in called a converter, which splits some fuel 
even uh, the fuel we are using in a different context, metal alcohol, but it produces in the location hydrogen. Now, our approach was, was quite different and most people laughed at us. We felt <coughs> that we should try to find a way where we can burn a convenient liquid fuel directly, not splitting it first to produce hydrogen. And we developed what's now called the direct oxidation methanol fuel cell. Metal alcohol is a very common cheap chemical and we developed a device which can burn in the fuel cell metal alcohol directly and efficiently. Now to give you an idea about this thing, when you buy a battery, either your car, acid battery, or a little battery for your flashlight, all the action in a chemical battery is enclosed. What's in the battery? When the chemist used it up, you either recharge it or throw it away and buy a new one. Now in a fuel cell, you put through a fuel continuously to your device, which is very resembling a battery. And therefore, you can use it for a long time. We have run our fuel cells in excess of 5,000 hours. It's a long time for, for a, a little battery. And it's a wonderful device. Now, what you do? Now, what you do is, of course, a major problem because universities are not geared very well to see what practical use can be made. And I'm saying this not only our, but our university, but our friends at, at Caltech too. So we are still mightily struggling about what you can do with it. I think that very practical applications are coming, but it's not something somebody can start in a garage yeah. or a small business. Well, doctor, you're certainly Again, indicating that new science can give life to old practices and old technology. The unfortunate thing is, if they're established, they're sometimes more difficult to convert than it would have been to create something in the first place. So I understand from my uh, friends that the timing and, uh, let's say, logistics picture here that we have to terminate this discussion. It's been a real pleasure, and it's been a very enlightening experience for me and I hope for those who see this presentation on tape, and I hope you and I have the opportunity sometime in the future to talk again, either about science or Hungarians and Hungary. So thank you very I much. I enjoyed it also very much. It was a real pleasure. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.